This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. This edition of The Feed is brought to you by Peak Performance. If you are a startup, small business, or even a mid-sized enterprise needing professional HR support, your solution awaits with Peak Performance HR. Not every organization requires a full-time HR specialist, and Peak Performance HR offers fractional, flexible, and cost-effective outsourced HR services tailored to your unique needs. Visit peakperformancehr.ca. Coming up on the feed, helping victims of international tragedies access post-secondary education, an emerging filmmaker's premiere on the big screen, and the benefits of green hydrogen. But first, your health matters. A recent survey of family doctors by the Ontario College of Family Physicians shows that close to 65% are planning to change or leave their practice. This very troubling result just adds to the concerns that many Ontario residents have about actually finding and then keeping a family doctor. Joining us to dig a little deeper into this dilemma is the president of the Ontario College of Family Physicians, Dr. Mahale Kumanan. Welcome to the feed, doctor. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So what is at the root of this mass exodus of family doctors leaving their practice here in Ontario? Well, I think what we know is that uh, we have been facing a crisis in family medicine. And what our most recent data tells us is that this crisis is intensifying. Uh, So we know that in September 2022, we had about 2.3 million Ontarians who didn't have a family physician at that time. That number had actually increased from about 1.8 million from March 2020. And what our forecast is telling us is that we're expecting to see about 4.4 million Ontarians without a family physician by 2026. And what that would mean is it would be about one in four Ontarians without a family physician at that time. Now, we know that there are a number of factors that are contributing um, to this forecast um, that are are really affecting the way that family physicians work and ultimately sort of uh, trending us in this direction. So what are some of the contributing factors? So there are a number of them, and and I think, unfortunately, it's a little bit of a perfect storm. Mm. So when we look at that forecast, we are factoring in um, expected retirements, which we've seen um, more family physicians retiring over the past number of years. We're also factoring in the expected number of family medicine graduates who will be entering the, the profession. And we are also factoring in that number that you've touched on. So the number of family physicians who told us that they may actually plan to change the uh, the way that they practice or leave their practice altogether. And we've seen an interesting trend with um, the number of uh, family physicians who are trained to work in that typical family medicine clinic um, actually shifting away from that model and working in other areas of the healthcare system. And all of this is happening at a time when we know that our our population is aging, patients are presenting with more complex medical issues, and ultimately those require more of our time as family doctors. Dr. Kumanan, we're also hearing too much paperwork, not enough resources. Absolutely, and I think that captures it really well. What we know, we saw from our member research uh, at the OCFP in the spring, we know family physicians spend over 19 hours per week dealing with administrative work. And when we think about that number, that is actually more than two days of work. Um, And that is on top of the clinical work that we do when we're seeing our patients. And and I don't think any of us want family doctors sitting behind a computer dealing with paperwork instead of seeing our patients. 
So I think that is one um, significant area where if we see some movement on reducing that number of hours, it could really make an, an impact on the capacity that we have within the system to, to um, help address that number of unattached patients. We also know that um, access to team-based care for people in Ontario is not equitable. Right now, about 70% of family doctors don't work in a team-based care model, which means they don't have the supports they need to, to really care for that, that uh, patient population that they're caring for. Uh, so those are two areas where we need to see some movement. Can you explain exactly what a family doctor does, but also the negative impact if someone doesn't have a family doctor? Yes, sure. So, you know, being a family doctor is an amazing job. We have the opportunity to build relationships with our patients over time, really get to know their medical issues, get to know their family history and, and the rest of their family members. And it's a really um, lovely way to work. Um, what we know is that there is significant benefit to a patient being connected to a family physician who's known them over time. Um, and when a patient, when we see patients who don't have family physicians, really they're missing out on a number of things. So I think the first thing is family doctors are essentially sort of that front door to the rest of the healthcare system. So we're an important access point for patients to be able to access healthcare elsewhere. So when a patient doesn't have a family doctor, often it means they're having to go to different parts of the system um, to access care, whether that be a walk-in clinic or, or often we see patients who have to go to the emergency room because they don't have any other options in their community. The other thing we know is that when patients are connected to a family physician, we see really important health benefits overall for that patient. And we see reduced likelihood of emergency room usage, reduced likelihood of being admitted to the hospital, and ultimately longer life expectancy. So it's really important that we look at the crisis that we're in now and um, address it as quickly as we can so that we can actually help to improve the health of our population. And, and we also see improved costs overall when we have high attachment of patients to family doctors. Why is it that so many doctors at whatever career stage are choosing not to or are no longer willing to work in comprehensive family medicine? What's, what's the problem? That's, that's a really important question. And I, I think what this trend tells us is that we have not made the investments in primary care that we need. And as a result, family physicians in Ontario don't have the supports that they need to really um, be able to work um, efficiently and effectively in their practices. Now, family doctors go above and beyond and will do everything they can, but we certainly are struggling and um, we are seeing very high rates of burnout amongst family physicians. And I think ultimately family doctors are looking at, you know, without the right team-based care supports and with, with such high uh, administrative workload, um, many are looking at other options within the system. All right, so we've identified the problems. What are the solutions and what are you asking the Ford government to do in order to help? There are two big things. I think we have to look at specific ways that we can reduce the administrative burden. We have seen some movement um, from the government to, to commit to streamlining governmental forms. I think we can go a step further and look at streamlining all forms that family physicians fill out, including insurance forms. We know that can be fairly time-consuming. We have to look at the other things that land in our inbox as family doctors that can be streamlined. So simple things like requisitions. If I'm ordering an x-ray, often I need to keep a number of different requisitions for different um, imaging centers in my inbox and then search for the right one. 
having a standard form would actually help with that quite a bit. Um, and we know that referrals are quite a challenge for family doctors where ultimately it's sort of up to the individual family doctor to keep a running list in our heads or in our system of which specialist accepts what kind of referral and what are their wait times. Uh, so we have to move towards a centralized referral system where that's done centrally rather than within each family doctor's office. The other thing we want to do is uh, expand team-based care. So we would call on the government to expand team-based care across this province so that all family doctors are working with a team of providers to care for our patient population. And we have seen some movement there with a recent funding announcement for 18 new teams. But we know that's a step in the right direction, but, but more is needed. All right, so the Ontario College of Family Physicians is talking, speaking. Is the provincial government listening? Well, I think what I would say is that uh, this is a really critical time for our healthcare system in Ontario um, and for our government. I, I would see this as a real opportunity. We know that we have millions of Ontarians without a family physician right now. And if we don't take the right steps, that number is going to increase quite significantly. So we've seen some steps in the right direction, as I've said, but I think we need to see much more so that we're not getting to the place of millions more Ontarians without a family physician. Dr. Kumanan, President of the Ontario College of Family Physicians, thank you so much for your time on the feed. Thank you for having me. Meanwhile, the Ontario government is lowering the age for breast cancer screenings. With the details, here's Glenn Perkins. Ontario is lowering the age for regular publicly funded breast cancer screenings from 50 to 40. Laurie Reynolds, the director of the Central Regional Cancer Program at South Lake Regional Health Centre, says this will help with early detection. The expansion of the Ontario Breast Screening Program to decrease the age from 50 years to 40 years of age will allow for increased access to early detection of breast cancer. So we know that nearly 12,000 women are diagnosed with breast cancer each year, and we know early detection and increased access to care will save lives. When found early, many people can survive breast cancer with a 100% five-year relative survival rate for those that are diagnosed at stage one. However, the survival rate drops to less than 30% for those that are diagnosed at stage four. So we know that early detection is critical. So by decreasing the screening age from 50 years to 40 years, this will play a critical role in early detection of breast cancer. Having access to the early detection must be a relief for women with a history of breast cancer in their family. Correct, so in the central region, here at South Lake, we do approximately 100,000 mammograms per year, and we have 32 Ontario breast screening program sites in the central region. Comparatively, South Lake alone completes about 760 screening mammograms a month. Across our region, though, of those 100,000 uh, mammograms per year, and we see approximately 100 cancers diagnosed per month. Laurie, the good news from this is that more women will be screened, creating an increase in patients, but will the system be able to handle the volume? So with your help, the Ontario government invested $18 million into community and surgical diagnostic centres last year and added over 
49,000 hours of MRI and CT scans and over 30 million to add 49 new MRI machines in the 42 hospitals across the province. So from an equipment perspective, the government, Ontario government, has invested quite significantly in the equipment. Where perhaps we need to invest more will be the recruitment of MRTs to help support the running of those machines. What's the timeline for this change that will allow women 40 years of age to start receiving breast cancer screening? Over the next year. So we're hoping that the, the change or the adaption of the early screening will take place in the fall of 2024. So that age inclusion will change in the next fall, 2024, which will allow us time to recruit to the additional MRTs. It's a short time frame, however, as with a, a quite a significant amount of our health care providers, there are a shortage of MRTs across the province. During the announcement, the province mentioned a self-referral program. Explain to me how that will work. Yes, so as a woman seeking to have breast cancer uh, referral, it's a self-referral program. So uh, you can go on to the www.cancercareontario.ca website, so Cancer Care Ontario website, and uh, seek out the list of the local OBSP location sites on the website, and then just call the closest OBSP location nearest you, and you can make a self-referral. It's quite easy. Laurie, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Just, I think this uh, reducing the age limit from 50 years of age to 40 years of age will make a terrific impact on detecting breast cancer earlier in the stages. And as well, would like to encourage everyone in those age groups to self-refer themselves to get out and get your mammogram. Laurie Reynolds, Director of the Central Regional Cancer Program at South Lake Regional Health Centre, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you, Glenn. I appreciate your time. And if you would like to find out more about the self-referral program, that address again is cancercareontario.ca. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Also on the health beat, the multifaceted journey of aging is the focus of a free lecture at Vaughan City Hall on Monday evening. Bring academics and healthcare together. I'm Jim Lang on Monday. Dr. Tamara Daly, a professor at York University and the director of York U Center of Aging Research and Education, will be a key panelist for the free community lecture about aging taking place at Vaughan City Hall, Monday, 6.30 p.m., hosted by York U McKenzie Health and the City of Vaughan. Monday evening's panel discussion will cover innovative strategies and insights on how researchers, healthcare practitioners, and policymakers are creating positive change for older adults in our region. Dr. Daly, thank you for joining me. A great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, uh, Dr. Daly, uh, tell us about your work at York University Center for Aging Research and Education because it's a hot topic for a lot of people in York region of the province. Yeah, absolutely. So my own research investigates promising practices to support people to age well in their communities. And I do this work internationally, so we explore a variety of ways in which different cities and different communities support older folks, uh, their families, as well as the health and social care providers that are doing that work. Whether they're working in community, they're working in a hospital, they might be working in long-term care or home care. 
Interesting. Now tell us about Monday's Aging into the Future event at Vaughn City Hall. Uh, why did you want to take part and be a participant? Well, to me it's important that we have these kinds of conversations with community members to hear from them what it is that they need as they age and also to share some of the promising approaches that we've discovered in our research here in Canada but also abroad. Interesting. Um, why should our listeners attend this event? Well, I think if, you know, they might themselves be uh, experiencing uh, aging, uh, they might be using some of the services that are there to support older adults, or they might be there as family members to do so. They've got that experience to share with others and those insights. Um, and also just to spark some creativity and imagination about how we want to build our communities so that they best support uh, folks as they age. The city of Vaughan is a very fast-growing municipality, expected to reach a population of approximately 500,000 by 2041, and it's projected that older adults, 55-plus, which I'm in that category, will make up the largest portion of the population of Vaughan, representing more than 30% of the total population by 2031. How, how do we support this segment of the population? Well, I think we don't do it in one way. I think there are so many different uh, ways in which a community can be supportive. So you make sure that you have libraries that are available and have excellent programming that people are interested in attending. You make sure that you have accessible day programs should people be experiencing uh, dementia so that their families can get respite and also continue to participate in the workforce if they need to. You make sure that your hospitals are welcoming places. You do little things like make sure that there's large text and multiple languages uh, available when people are receiving healthcare services. So there's no one way to support people as they age, but there are a lot of uh, different practices that can be put in place and a lot of uh, programs that can be supported in order to ensure that uh, people uh, can thrive into older age. Speaking with Dr. Tamara Daly, a professor at York University and the director of York Youth Center for Aging Research and Education, uh, my attitude towards aging has changed over the years. I think like a lot of people, and I, I see Henry Winkler, who just turned 78, and how active and thriving he is as an actor. And I see the Rolling Stones still going strong. And I see uh, people who are in fitness and athletics, and, I, and that inspires me to try to be active every day. How important is it just to be active a little bit every day to... to, to I guess, prevent from aging too quickly? Well, active means different things to different people. Mm. It, it might mean making sure that you have a, a chat with family members every day. It could mean uh, getting together um, as part of book clubs or meeting, meeting folks at the coffee shop on a regular basis. It might mean scheduling nice long walks, or it could mean meeting folks in the dog parks. But it can also be those formal things, so uh, community center programming, uh, getting together uh, in order to um, do crafts and hobbies. And, and for some folks, it's about being um, making sure that their voice is heard, so getting involved in city politics or in provincial politics, or it might even mean taking up particular uh, campaigns uh, in their local community. There's no one way to remain active, but I think you've, you've hit on something that's really important, which is that people, as they age, are a vital part of our community, 
And we have to also think about the ways in which we celebrate older people and the voice and the experience that they bring to our communities. Uh, Doctor, it's a buzzword right now, but the the term age is just a number. I hear it a lot. Uh, Our society, are we changing a little bit towards being more open-minded to a a prime minister or president in their 70s or a movie star in their 70s? And it's not too unusual. They can do it. Why not support them and enjoy it? Yeah, well, in a way, age is a number that, uh, and we used to assign random numbers to aging anyways. Hmm. I have to say that for some folks, uh, aging doesn't start until they're much older than in their 70s. Uh, For folks that are uh, facing challenges, aging might start at the age of 45. Hmm. So it really isn't something that has a, you kind of hit a mark and uh, you're aged, and before that you weren't. I think what we have to remember is what is it that we need to do in order to create engaging uh, communities that people want to be part of and that they can find a space in order to to um, uh, to engage with with other members of their community, whether they're the same age as them or they're much younger or older. So we think of things for older people, and we assume that it should just be older people that are part of that. But in fact, what happens for lots of folks is they they want to remain in intergenerational spaces. Yeah, because I, I look at we can learn and uh, be inspired by and maybe uh, educated by people of different generations, whether they're older than us or younger than us. Yeah, absolutely. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, thank you so much, Doctor. Uh, just a reminder, Monday's event, York University, McKenzie Health in the City of Vaughan invites you to a free community lecture exploring the multifaceted journey of aging, as you heard Dr. Daly talk about, taking place at Vaughan City Hall Monday, 6.30 p.m. To register to attend, visit yorku.ca slash aging future. Doctor, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so very much. Coming up on the feed, scholarships for students fleeing global conflicts. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Ontario government is providing millions of dollars for scholarship programs for students impacted by international tragedies. Tina Cortez with that story. Jill Dunlop is the Minister of Colleges and Universities. Minister Dunlop, thank you for joining The Feed. Hi, Tina. Thanks for having me here today. Tell us about these two new scholarships. How many students will be helped? Well, these are a renewal of uh, two scholarships that we introduced last year, which we saw supported almost 250 students. So there's there's two different scholarships uh, totaling $2.5 million and prioritizing students impacted by international tragedies. So there's the $1.9 million that is going towards the Ontario-Ukraine Solidarity Scholarship uh, to support post-secondary students who have relocated to Canada on an emergency basis. And that was introduced last year, and excited to say that we're renewing it for another academic year. And then we're also investing approximately $600,000 for the Ontario Remembrance Scholarship, which is in memory of the 57 Canadians who were lost in the fatal plane crash of uh, Ukrainian International Airlines in January of 2020. Minister Dunlop, what is the monetary value of each scholarship? 
Well, the $2.5 million for the two scholarship programs will generate uh, $10,000 in scholarship money to each recipient. And how can those funds be used? What type of specific supports will be available to students? Um, so both scholarships are administered through the publicly assisted colleges and universities um, through an application process for eligible students. So funding is provided to post-secondary institutions who make the awards available to students based on their academic merit uh, and financial needs. And this is starting uh, this past fall. Minister, just before we let you go, any last comments about these scholarships and those students who will be helped? Well, I'm pleased that we're supporting students once again with these types of scholarships. So the support will continue to ensure that students have the financial help that they need to complete their studies while also honoring victims of the recent tragedy. So I think this is a, a great opportunity for students to reach out to their post-secondary institution to see if they're eligible. So they have to connect directly with their college or university? Yes, exactly. Okay. Now, college and university students are just about halfway through their fall term. Can I ask you, do you have any words of encouragement for them? Well, I know students, and actually I have uh, my daughters in her fourth year university, so wrapping up their midterms right now. So it's the uh, getting to the tail end of the, the fall semester. So I wish everyone good luck with their, uh, their exams in the last few weeks. Minister Dunlop, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Tina. Appreciate it. An emerging filmmaker from right here in York Region will premiere her work at the Real Asian Film Festival. Shaliza back us with a preview. We are always here to support local talent here at 105.9 The Region. And one of our own, or used to be one of our own, still will always be one of our own, Netta Sarshar joining me right now. How are you? Hi, Shalisa. It's so lovely to have you here in studio with it's us. It's so lovely to be here. It's like a trip back in time. I know, it feels, it, all the nostalgia is coming back. Let me just tell you, the amount of hugs that were just exchanged with you being in the building. Oh my gosh, my arms hurt. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Love that for you. Now, you're here to talk about something very specific. You've got this brand new short film. It's called called Unibrow, and tell us about it. Yeah, so Unibrow is a short film about an Iranian-Canadian girl who um, hates her brows and, by extension, her Iranian heritage. Um, and when she goes to school with ruined brows, she reluctantly makes friends with a girl from Iran who offers her to help her out by threading her brows. And in that process, she begins to understand the complexity of brows and its, like, situationship in um, the Middle Eastern uh, culture and diaspora. Um, um, and by extension, begins to accept herself and her community. I love that. I, I watched it. I got an exclusive preview of it. Yes, you did. I honestly, like, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And you actually shot it right here in York Region. I did, yes. Um, a lot of the scenes are shot right outside of my house in Richmond Hill. Um, we used the um, Richvale Public Library branch as one of our um, outside locations. And it was really lovely. We actually got permission from the York Region uh, Library Board. Um, and they were very kind with us. And on the day, um, the librarian stepped outside and I was like, we're going to be done really quickly. I promise we're not going to be like a fuss and whatnot. And she was like, yeah, um, no worries. Uh, can I get some pictures of you all? <laughs> and it was so lovely. So the whole time that we were outside shooting, people were coming up to us and talking like, what are you doing? What's going on? And whatnot. And such a different experience from other times when I've shot in downtown Toronto when people are like, yeah. you need to be off my street. Like, mm -hmm. get out of here. Like, and whatnot. So it, York Region definitely showed up. And I think that's the difference. I think that's what sets up 
us apart. Definitely. You know, Definitely. communities are strong. And speaking of communities, like that, the Iranian-Canadian community, community that you were born into, and what? how does this film kind of relate to your life? Yeah, absolutely. I really, like, when I started writing the script, it was really with just, like, the intention of, like, okay, I want to capture a day in the life of, like, a preteen in, like, kind of, like, a diaspora and, like, an immigrant kind of community. And then I thought to myself, well, what was, what did I need to hear at that age? Or, like, mm -hmm. what sort of, like, mentorship and, like, support did I need to, like, hear or, like, understand in order to, like, feel good about myself, which I oftentimes didn't get. Um, and so that was really, like, the the sort of like driving pull behind like putting together the story and like specifically towards like the Iranian community mm -hmm. like all the main characters show up you got like your overbearing mom mm -hmm. you got your um, uh, grandma who um, is making tea in the kitchen constantly and things like that and she does still have some wisdom to offer though oh she definitely does she most certainly does and you know what I think this is a film that a lot of immigrant families and immigrant children first generation children can relate to you know you, you don't like how you look all the time and your parents are always there to tell you no it's fine that's natural that's how you're supposed to look why did you do that to your beautiful face and what kind of message do you think that this sends to all of those kids I really hope that if anything it sends to them that like it's it's okay and um, that like they have a place in this world and that um, I think that their uh, heritage is not a um, something to be ashamed of or something that they have to grow up uh, detesting or trying to erase um, and that if anything it uh, uh, like the pressure should be on like systems and like our culture to like make sure that like the, it's inclusive and stays inclusive and that uh, we um, make sure that like all those young people or and and really anybody with uh, features that don't fit into um, mainstream beauty standards uh, feel at home and never have to uh, feel like they have to erase parts of themselves to be be themselves. Definitely. And I do have a question for you. What advice would you have for any up and coming filmmakers? Because putting this together, I mean, when I watched it, I was reading the credits at the end and you had a really <laughs> large team of people working with you. How did you get that to work? That was the first thing that surprised me so much when I started making films. Like I was just like, oh shoot, this isn't just like one person and their camera. Like this yeah. is like a good like 30 people at any given time on set. Um, this is actually my second short. Uh, my first short, uh, Rachel and Rahul, uh, was um, which came out at the uh, Canadian um, Film Festival in back in March mm -hmm. this year. Um, that was my first short, and that was done with uh, like a low budget, like it was just truly out of my own pocket and a volunteer casting crew. Um, Never going to do again. That was brutal. Oh, okay. <laughs> now we, do, we learned what not to do. We, well, we it was unfor it was a necessity, unfortunately, to gain that portfolio because once you get that first short um, on the ground, that's when you're able to apply for grants. Um, and with uh, Unibrow, I got the Kenda Arts Council uh, Creation Concept Grant, which was really um, which really helped things out and was like mm -hmm. a bulk of like the budget. But I also uh, won a pitch contest actually through Real Asian Film Festival, where it's coming. out. Out. Amazing. Yeah, no, th that was a really special experience. Um, so that helped you to connect with all of these people as well? I I think so. It's been, I've been in the film game now for about like three years, like I would say since 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been like a slow process of like building community. So it was really like the, that set is just such, like that cast and crew of Unibrow is such like a mismatch of like my different worlds. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, some people from like the Iranian community, some people from like BIPOC TV and film, which is a really awesome organization I'm affiliated and some people that Real Asian recommended to me. And so, and we all just like now know each other mm -hmm. um, and are all able to kind of like sit with each other. But main advice for 
uh, an emerging filmmaker is the best way to learn how to do a short film is to do a short film. <laughs> Love it. That is great. I mean, that's the basic advice. It's great advice, Nada. And if we want to watch the short film, stream it, when's it coming out? Where can we follow you? All of that fun stuff. Yeah. So um, you can follow me on Instagram at Ned's John, N E D S. John. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> and then um, the film itself is going to be premiering at Real Asian Film Festival in the Tiff Bell Lightbox on November 11th at 7.30 p.m. Uh, so not this weekend, next weekend. That is absolutely amazing. Netta, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you and definitely go check out this film, Unibrow. It is I can't miss. Thank you so much, Lisa. That means so much coming from you. And really cool to see you doing all your amazing things oh, as well. thank you. And it was great to have you back, Netta. Thank you. Happy to be back. After the break, Green Hydrogen Explained. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Cypher Neutron is a clean tech company based in Toronto that has developed a groundbreaking technology that produces so-called green hydrogen from simple water, power without pollution. Joining us now to explore this incredible breakthrough is Gurjan Randawa, CEO of Cypher Neutron. Good to have you with us on the feed. It's my pleasure and thank you for having me here. So hydrogen has been labeled the fuel of the future, and you're capturing it. How are you doing it? How are you creating this from water? Uh, so, and Cypher Neutron is a Canadian research and development company focused on the production of green hydrogen. We have developed a disruptive technology called anion exchange membrane, which is the latest technology to produce or to change water into hydrogen and oxygen gases. So simply, we, we have a unique way. We use a membrane, we use a catalyst recipe that we have prepared, and we power or we use electricity to break, hydrogen, to break water into hydrogen and oxygen gases at highly efficient way, in a highly efficient way. So that's how we produce green hydrogen from water. And it's power without pollution, as we mentioned. So let's talk about what green hydrogen actually powers. So first of all, and the term green hydrogen is very important to understand. Traditionally, the hydrogen comes from natural gas or fossil fuels. So the term green hydrogen means a low carbon hydrogen. When we break water into hydrogen and oxygen gases, we do not produce any carbon dioxide. So this produced hydrogen or green hydrogen is can be used as a process gas, meaning in ammonia manufacturing, the bird that we eat every day uh, needs hydrogen, the gasoline, the diesel that we use is processed with hydrogen, mining industry needs hydrogen, steel industry needs hydrogen. So these are the many ways uh, existing market is there for hydrogen. Also, now the world is moving towards uh, electrification. So hydrogen is now being used in fuel cells to power cars and to clean steel industry also because traditionally the steel industry is um, powered or steel is made using 
natural gas or coal. Now the steel industry is moving towards green hydrogen to make green steel. So this is how the hydrogen or the green hydrogen is decarbonizing the economy. And, you know, it's interesting, steel making ranks first among heavy industries for CO2 emissions per day. That's that's huge. Definitely. Actually, the steel and iron industry, they account for 7% of uh, carbon dioxide emissions globally. So that's huge footprint. It's my understanding that at scale, you could produce up to 10 tons of green hydrogen on site, significantly reducing emissions. Yes, so the technology that we have produced is scalable. We have right now 10 kilowatt system, which can we can put them together to produce more and more hydrogen. So yes, the technology we have is available today and it can produce 10 tons of hydrogen a day. And we can even do more uh, if we have to. So the technology we develop is modular-based, scalable technology. Why aren't we hearing more about this? Why isn't this making headlines here and around the world? So hydrogen, green hydrogen industry is very new and world is just learning about this right now. So actually Cypher Neutron has signed many global deals uh, in India, in China, in Taiwan, in South America, South Africa, even in Canada. So the world is now understanding that the hydrogen is the fuel of future. Uh, but definitely the Canadian government has to step in here. They have to uh, promote the local companies like the, like Cypher Neutron. Uh, and uh, definitely the world is changing. And as a Canadian company, uh, we are working with the government of Canada to you know, tell the world what we have today and how this is going to change the way the companies do business. And speaking of business, this is your business. Where did this technology come from? Was it a think tank within Cypher Neutron, a, a group of scientists and, and engineers who came up with this? How did that all come about? So Cypher Neutron, so, you know, the team at Cypher Neutron has been working on this from last 20 plus years. We have our sister company or our partner company, Dynacert, that produces alkaline electrolyzers. From there, we started working in this field. So we, and we are first company in North America to launch and to commercialize AEM electrolyzer technology. So we have been working on this from last 10, 15 years. And here we are today with the product that is available today in the market, which produces green steel, uh, sorry, green hydrogen to make to, and to decarbonize the industry. And what, in your opinion, are the, the greatest benefits to green hydrogen? So green hydrogen produces low carbon. The green hydrogen can burn significantly more and has much higher efficiency than the other systems available. Green hydrogen is sustainable. As you know, fossil fuels, we have tried this. We have tried EVs. We have tried fossil fuels. Five years ago, everyone was talking about EVs, EVs, EVs. Now, the world has recognized that this is not sustainable. Lithium is not sustainable. Fossil fuels are going to finish one day. Water is abundant. There's no limit to water. So green hydrogen is the most abundant fuel in the world, and it is sustainable fuel. And Cypher Neutron is doing it in a way which is 
sustainable because the traditional other electrolyzer companies or competitors in the market, they are using platinum, iridium, ruthenium to make green hydrogen electrolyzer. But Cypher Neutron has developed the technology today and is commercialized today that produces green hydrogen, this abundant fuel, without using any harmful or toxic chemicals and is sustainable. You know, it's interesting you talk about the benefits in terms of health and and the and of of the planet and of the people who exist on this planet, but there's also the wealth side of this. This sounds like it's a very lucrative business at this point. Uh, definitely. And so we are actually because we do not use any platinum iridium group metals, we can make this affordable. We have a technology today which is up to 30% cheaper than the traditional technologies available in the market. And we are working on this to even cut down the costs. So today, yes, one of the thing is because when we talk about moving away from fossil fuel, we have to look at the infrastructure. We have to look at the technology which is going to replace it. It has to be affordable. It has to make sense for people. So this is our focus. That's why we at Cypher Neutron has developed something which has, which has low cost to build and low cost to operate. So it's very affordable technology to replace the existing infrastructure. If our listeners, and I consider myself to be one of them, if, you want, if people want to find out more about Cypher Neutron and about uh, green hydrogen and everything that you've got going within your company and more, where should they go for information? 